private messages and emails about this concerning the festivals than just about anything else dealing with the festival. It's, you know, it's the unspoken truth of coming to Torah that, quote unquote, in that it's very hard to find joy in holy days that are foreign to us and our way of thinking. And, you know, especially when we're not culturally attuned and, and the festival can't be celebrated the way it was meant to be and commanded to be celebrated and compounded by, you know, when we don't have a local congregation and added to all that, there's this stress put onto people that's very judgy. A whole lot of folks know more about why Christmas and Easter are supposedly pagan than they do about the festivals, and there are so many urban legends out there, um, the majority of it fictitious nonsense gleaned from and added on to 19th century anti-Catholic propaganda, excuse me, grown out of, you know, sectarian hatred in the UK, and, and not so much, or even sometimes at all, out of responsible scholarship. Well, it would seem that most folks have a really bad taste in their mouths for Sukkot because of all these issues, you know, whether they admit it publicly or not. And so, you know, Sukkot's a very depressing time of year for a great many, even if they pretend otherwise. Forgive me, you know, as usual, my sinuses are draining and I did not take a Sudafed because I almost never do, but I at least should before I record. Now, it's not the season of their joy, and it's hard to make it so, all right? It marked the transition um, between the fall harvest and the new barley planting season. There were fresh foods available that were in short supply or absent entirely during the rest of the year. They'd worked very hard, and now they were going to play hard. In an agrarian society there, where a good harvest meant survival and a bad harvest meant starvation, and any kind of harvest at all was back-breaking and stressful work. Taking a week to feast and drink and dance and listen to music and storytellers and to see distant relations, you know, think of how much a fun, you know, a family reunion can be if, if you have a happy family, right? Now picture having it at Disneyland. Um, you know, if there was alcohol being served and people dancing and celebrating. So not much like Disneyland because there's no alcohol there, but people, you know, looked forward to it and enjoyed it at that level. Now, please do not send me anti-Disney propaganda, please. It was just an illustration that practically anyone can understand. Anyway, this week we're going to talk about Sukkot, uh, about the spiritual fruit of joy, and also about lamentations, because I don't think we can be joyful with also without also uh, being able to be sorrowful. Or at least we'll get to lamentations if we have time. Um, and we're going to get super honest about people's struggles and our very real limitations. And hopefully we're going to come through this feeling better about the whole thing and less defeated. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where... I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture. If you're bored, listen to me yawning, okay? Uh, with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer it material, gosh, what's with me? I have six years. 
worth of blog, and now the printer's going off. Um, <laughs> six years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Uh, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. So, first of all, let's do the obligatory Sukkot scriptural references. After I sniff. So, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. That's a lot of offerings. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days of the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That means you were born an Israelite, okay? Um, and that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 16. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your fresh threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in the feast, in your feast, you and your son and your daughter your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. 
Now, obviously, we have some rather significant issues with dealing this for realsies, right? The place that Yahweh eventually chose is Jerusalem. And the place where you present the aforementioned food offerings and etc. was at the table. It's the temple. This culture was pre-programmed for you to be able to do this. Where there was no hassle with getting time off work, but, and this is important, it wasn't really very doable for women for at least half the month because, ladies, you wouldn't want to be on a walking trip anywhere near the beginning of your period. Or if you had an infant, which you would have quite often in your youth, I imagine. Um, as often as not, I imagine that women were left home with the young kids. <laughs> And the men went, and it wasn't as though the work of caring for little kids miraculously ends on high Sabbaths. So right off the bat, all you moms of kids who feel defeated during the festivals, you were not unrepresented during biblical times. <laughs> you know, so often we get this rosy picture based largely on what we think men were able to enjoy. And we imagine that women were able to freely join in and celebrate, but it wasn't as though men were sharing the child care and cooking duties. It wasn't as if you could get a babysitter. That was within the sphere of a woman's world, and that work went on always, with the exception of cooking on regular Sabbaths, but women were still expected to prepare the feasts on the high Sabbaths. Well, which, uh, you know, the first and last days of the festival and all the days in between, too. Um, I'm not saying that when they went, it wasn't a big deal for the ladies. I'm just saying that if you ladies listening are thinking they had a vacation like the men were getting and that you feel like a total failure because you're neck deep in work during that time and despairing over not finding that joyful, don't think it's just you. Or that you're unique. I mean, I imagine you're trying to make it enjoyable for everyone else and it's not really happening for you a lot of the time, right? Because that's a lot of work. All right. Um, so festivals have traditionally been a ton of work for women, but they were gathered together in an exciting place with extended family um, to do it, which made it more of a celebration. Maybe a family they, they hadn't seen since they left their father's home. Other, they're actually it's more like their mother's home because the father, fathers and daughters didn't have, you know, that much of a real relationship. Now, for women, they join the household of their husbands and a festival might provide a rare opportunity to see their mothers and brothers with whom women were generally close. You know, expectations kill joy. And for a lot of you, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. <laughs> Now, and being in Jerusalem near the temple, I have to explain to you the mindset of the ancient world um, as concerning temples. Uh, they are the overlap between heaven and earth. And this wasn't just a metaphorical thing. They saw this as a real thing. Okay. Therefore, the focal point of the presence of God or whatever deity they worshipped. All right. That's what the, that's how they saw it. It wasn't just a cathedral or a church building where we call it God's house as an idiot. This was God's literal house. It was thrilling to be in Jerusalem, not only because of the festive atmosphere, but because you were literally in the shadow of one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
Uh, the Bible attests to the belief that Yahweh's presence was there in Solomon's temple, but that even in the second temple, his eyes were always there, even if the cloud of his presence never inhabited it. Ritual and beliefs unite people, which is why even for secular folks, you know, Christmas time is known as the happiest season of the year. When people know how to celebrate together, it's a uniting and thrilling experience. Every country and every religion has rituals and holidays that unite people, which is why here in America, flag burning and taking a knee during the national anthem can be disproportionately offensive, given that it is actually a peaceful form of protest. People react because those are ritually traditional rallying times, and when that is threatened, people feel as though their identity is under attack. You know, sure, we've got mantras and talking points about why we feel it's wrong, but deep down, it's a psychological reaction to a threat to our corporate identity and everything we believe that entails. Um, when Yeshua, uh, or you may call him Jesus, and the various first century uh, Jewish prophets spoke of the coming destruction of the temple, which we, we've already covered, um, the Jewish faithful would have felt all that revulsion and worse. All that is to say that being in Jerusalem and near the temple was a joy in and of itself. And women didn't have expectations that they weren't just going to work all the time. <laughs> they just didn't. So um, let's talk about Sukkot expectations. Uh, American Messianic slash Hebrew roots folks have developed a tradition of outdoor camping. For the whole week, and if that appeals to you, it can be fun, but it's hardly a requirement, and you are not sinning if you don't do it. I mean, let's be super honest here. We can't keep Sukkot. We can kind of observe it, and we can practice it, but even if we could all afford to go to Jerusalem three times a year, there isn't a way for even a fraction of believers to travel there, even if you diverted all the planes in the world to do so. And I know there are a lot of people who say it's a sin not to go, but during the first century, most Jews lived outside the land. And it was a goal to make pilgrimage once in a lifetime. And that was the goal if you were wealthy enough. Most never went. Even first century Jews living in the land mostly didn't attend Sukkot yearly. Passover drew the biggest crowds. But if you were barely scraping by under Roman occupation, it wasn't always feasible. Life had changed drastically after the Babylonian conquest. Great many Jews were poor and enslaved throughout the Roman Empire. And Babylon was a three-week journey away and fraught with dangers. So camping in the great outdoors is a tradition, pure and simple. And it's one that isn't so much fun in Canada <laughs> or where I live. And we routinely uh, get wind gusts of up to 60 miles per hour during that time of year. It's going to be a nice day today. It's only going to be gusts of, you know, well, it's going to be winds of 20, and then I don't know what the gusts will be. And that's August, okay? <laughs> now, all of this was to be done in Jerusalem and to remember a good harvest and to live in booths in order to remember the wilderness years after the Exodus. There is absolutely nothing 
preventing people from setting up a fort in their living room and sleeping in sleeping bags if they really want to do it. When the boys were young and we had a basement, that's what we did for them, and, and they loved it. I slept in a bed, and so did my husband. I still do. I can't set up a sukkah outside without blowing it into my neighbor's yard. I mean, one year during Sukkot, their trampoline ended up in my backyard. You know, imagine if we'd been camping there. <laughs> ah, But if you don't have any high winds, go for it if you want to do that. Now, some folks feel like they have an obligation to attend a conference or to put one on, which is fine if that floats your boat, but not everyone finds that particularly joyful, especially for people like me with significant social anxiety issues. I spoke at a Sukkot gathering two years ago on the Utah-Nevada border, and I literally knew no one personally before I went. I mean, I did know the hosts via social media, which is why they asked me to come be their speaker, and I spent almost the entire time scared to death and decompressing in my room. And yet, I could go to Disneyland or on a cruise ship no problem, or I could be in Jerusalem near the temple and be just fine because no one would know me or have any expectations of me, and I could just enjoy myself and exist, as long as I was surrounded by loved ones who know how scared I am. But, you know, not required. I don't think massive amounts of teaching was going on at festivals. They were enjoying themselves and participating in recognized social rituals and activities. Um, again, expectations of what people should be doing when we can't do the commandment can be a real joy killer. And it's all a matter of assumptions and sometimes wishful thinking and sometimes wanting to be super spiritual, you know, which... I, I'm never very super spiritual. <laughs> now that my kids are adults, they're realizing the hard facts about being adults with weekend jobs and almost no time off. And especially young people and those with low seniority or on-call jobs aren't always able to take the holy days off or the Sabbaths off. And if that applies to you, just allow me to encourage you. Okay, ancient Israel was culturally set up to shut down on those days, and our society is not. Um, speaking as an American here, and most of the Western world. Now, no one's going to be damned if they have to work those days to feed their families, okay? In ancient Israel, you had to really want to stomp on God's honor in order to really work on those days. And so when it talks about being cut off from Israel, it was with that reality in mind. We have limitations and restrictions, and we also have to put forward a good witness, and yelling at your boss to demand holy days off isn't really a positive witness to unbelievers. And if you are blessed enough to work with others who keep the feast, no way can most jobs let everyone off. It's simple logistics. Do your best with what situation you find yourself in and work toward the future when maybe you have more freedom, more seniority, um the financial resources, whatever. Um, okay, so uh, I, I did a little thing and I uh, asked the people on my social media page, you know, what's the hardest thing about Sukkot, you know, for you, for your family? And some of the answers didn't surprise me and some of them did. You would be shocked at how many people who are single, childless, 
and disabled or or even not white feel out of place at feast and not included okay because let's let's face it when when people organize stuff they're mostly organizing it around married people with children and the elderly elderly feeling left out too so um now special needs families have uh very real issues uh, for all festivals, I I've spoken and written in the past about not wanting, not making life hell for our families while trying to keep the commandments. If you have a severely disabled child who won't eat anything but white bread or breaded chicken nuggets during um, Passover, fade it to them. No rabbi will tell you differently. If you can't fast on Yom Kippur due to medical issues, then don't. If you can't camp because of mobility issues, then don't. Sometimes we get really hung up on technicalities because we believe that commandments are supposedly some kind of punishment on the people who really have good reasons not to keep them. Would you respond to any amount of pressure to take a noise-sensitive autistic child to the front row of a fireworks show? Of course not. What what if your neighbors called you unpatriotic? Well, you wouldn't care. You might have some choice words in response, but you would think that their point was stupid. There is no joy in a festival where a child with special needs is starving and howling and can't why understand why you won't feed them. Okay? God didn't give us commandments so that we could act like heartless legalistic jerks. God doesn't want the feeding tube on a coma patient removed for Yom Kippur, okay? If you can't literally imagine Yeshua doing it to someone, then don't you do it either. Some folks will give you advice that they don't have to live with, and I freely give you permission to be sane and compassionate. The season, the reason for the season is joy. Okay, if it feels like an obligation, then reevaluate what you're doing and maybe who you're listening to. Because Gentiles who come into this tend to be incredibly legalistic because they see the commandments as a list of do's and don'ts instead of wisdom and guidelines. If keeping a commandment in a certain way goes against wisdom and compassion, then you're doing it wrong. All right. Mercy. I'm going to substitute mercy for compassion. If the way you keep Sukkot brings you no joy, or if it is legitimately causing suffering to others, well, you know, same death. Find a different way. What can you do? So in the transcript for this, I'm going to try and, and to include a lot of suggestions from my readers. Maybe I'll just include a link to that. I'll just include a link to that whole thing so you can read them all. And, um, Although this is probably going to come too late for you this year, start planning for next year. I'm going to tell you one thing right now. A lot of people get themselves into trouble by not allowing themselves to do the things that are fun about secular holidays or even just those things they really enjoyed from Christmas and Easter that they feel are somehow guilty by association with not being quote-unquote biblical, but most folks really enjoy doing special food. Baking cookies together, sharing that joy by taking baked goods to people who are shut-ins or elderly or disabled or lonely. Visiting with friends you haven't seen in a long time. Um, decorating and sending out cards. Maybe get on social media and get with some others who like to do it. Fireworks, just not in my neighborhood because that went on for two weeks straight and they will do it again for New Year's. Oh, 
maybe they won't because I wrote this last week and then they put their house on the market like the next day. <laughs> ah, video conferencing with other families and telling stories and sharing love. What I'm saying is that your culture has ways that naturally are interpreted by your brain as celebration. Use those things to rejoice before the Lord. There's a reason why at the end of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are um, celebrating and worshiping and not just one nation and tongue, okay? Because how we celebrate is culturally defined. And I think when we try to be something we're not, you know, more Jewish, we just get miserable. Whoa, we came up to the end of the half hour here. I will be back in a few minutes. And welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context, where we're talking about the phenomenon of having no joy during the season of our joy. And uh, I did a whole post on this on my on my social media wall, and I will I will link it so people can look at that. Um, and all the people's answers of what gives them joy or what gives them no joy. You got successes and you know and um, disappointments and. Um, Anyway, uh, so we just started talking about the importance of doing things that culturally register in our brains as joyful. Um, you know, in South America, they may take joy in eating tarantulas, but that doesn't bring joy to an American. So don't just say, oh, it brings them joy. So I'm going to try it because your brain will not register it that way. Um you know, there there are things we do in this country and in every country. Every country has these things that specifically mean joyfulness to us. Different kinds of music, whatever. Um, and if we try and co-opt someone else's culture and just expect what's joyful for them to be joyful for us, it's not going to be. That's not how our brains work. Unless you go in there and you live with them and you immerse yourself in their culture and you get it. But you can't just decide. Very few people are able to make that transition. Now, Sukkot at my house is about brisket and chocolate cheesecake and homemade applesauce and sweet tea and donuts sitting and sitting around and talking. Okay. And we might watch old live action Disney movies like Follow Me Boys and The Third Man of the Mountain and Swiss Family Robinson. If we give Matt the choice, then we'll watch The Great Escape. <laughs> which we all love. Now, last year we didn't have Sukkot because of Andrew's brain surgery. Believe me, almost anything's better than that. You know, do what works for you. You didn't work hard bringing in the harvest. You aren't getting ready for the barley planting in a long winter. You didn't spend all summer stressing out about the rainfall. You don't get to go to the temple, and so you aren't going to have that sort of happiness at all. Um, but you can have your own, the joy in your own unique cultural creation. So, you know, and, and joy, joy is a very tricky fruit of the spirit. You know, remember that old Sesame Street song? One of these things is not like the others, you know, and, um, 
I won't sing the rest. Well, joy is very elusive, and especially when we didn't develop it as children. Joy is seriously hampered by traumatic experiences and memories and the defense mechanisms we develop in order to keep ourselves from crumbling in the face of abuse. And when the abuse is gone, the defense mechanisms and trauma are still in place, dictating how we perceive and experience and react to everything around us. Those walls were built to keep out certain types of input, but they also keep out joy. Joy isn't all that physically fit and can't make it over those high walls or dig through them or under them, and so the walls have to come down. Fortunately, as we saw in Jericho, our God is in the business of taking down walls. Now, if you have suffered trauma or abuse in your family or still are, I, um, I'm going to recommend the book Changes That Heal by Henry S. Cloud. I will link that in the transcript. He is a clinical psychiatrist and a Christian with a gift of helping people sort through their issues with storytelling. He also has a book called Boundaries. Now, when I was 41, I came to the point where I could no longer cope with some things from my past. And I was having a problem accurately seeing how damaging certain relationships in my life were. And his book was just an excellent starting point for being able to develop joy. Um, so that was about 10 years ago and I read it and things started to change for the better in how I saw the world and what was really going on in some very dysfunctional relationships. Um, it didn't change the relationships, but, or it didn't change the people, but it changed how I interacted and how much of their nonsense I allowed to define how I saw things and especially myself. But... It was about four years ago that I had a serious breakthrough when God taught me how to remember joy, and I did a short video about it. I was laying in bed one night, and all of a sudden, I just knew how to fill up my joy tank, which is important. You know, I used to, you can probably, you may be able to relate to this. I hope you can, but a lot of people can. I used to dwell on traumatic things at night, and it was torture. And what really broke the camel's back was when someone I was connected with in ministry allowed me to be accused of some terrible things that were not true in order to make life easier for himself. All right. To this day, he still hasn't stepped up and done the right thing. And I imagine he never will. But the nature of the accusations was so destructive that I, I couldn't sleep for about nine months. Just being filled with dread. Um, that the accusations would spread beyond his local congregation. Now, it was at that point that, uh, it was about nine months later that, um, Yahweh taught me how to dwell on joy. Or rather, he equipped me so that it was possible because I had tried to do it in the past and it just wouldn't work. We had to be broken before we can be built up. And I was just demolished with fear and grief and humiliation and hopelessness because you know, what are you going to do? If you haven't done something, you can't repent of it. You can't fix it. You can't prove you haven't done it either. So he showed me two specific memories, and both concerning my sons. My favorite two memories that are just pure moments of joy. One was a scene where Andrew was in second grade, and I would bring him and his brother, his twin brother, Matthew, lunch at school every day and visit with them because we lived right down the road. Now, Andrew, before I left, would always put his head back and close his eyes, wanting to be kissed on his eyelids. Ugh. 
right in front of everyone. And I remember the smell of his skin and the sweet little smile on his face, what it felt like to kiss those soft eyelids and the love that would swell up inside me. It was just pure bliss. Uh, it, I never felt more loved in my life is when he would do that. Now, the other was a scene in the backyard of our house in Roswell. It was a different kind of joy. The New Mexico where the boys, who were about four, were stripped down naked. And I would chase them around the inside of our tall stucco yard walls with a hose. And the sound of their laughter and the silliness and the fun is as clear a memory as I have. You know, even now I'm smiling, you know, I'm remembering, you know, I remember those things often. But they are beautiful works of art in my life, more precious than any Picasso or Rembrandt. Now, I'm certain that you also have similar memories. Yahweh showed them to me in the depth of my despair um, and told me to dwell on them. And lo and behold, I found myself smiling and just experiencing real joy. And I found that doing that would fill up an empty reservoir inside me, what I call my joy tank. And I could actually live off of it for quite a while before the tormenting thoughts from tra past trauma could overpower me. Okay? And, and bring me into despair. But before I even got to that point, I also had to deal with the 17 years of undiagnosed postpartum depression that I lived with after suffering through three miscarriages within a year. Now, unlike postpartum depression related to childbirth, um, miscarriage-induced PPD has no happy ending to wake up to one day. It endures, and a great many women suffer in complete ignorance as to what's going on. I only knew because of a dream I had where I was handed a magazine in a journal about PPD after miscarriage, and it was telling the story of a woman, and I realized it was my story. I actually um, did some research on it after that, and I journaled through that in my blog, and it was a very ugly healing process. But even though I'm still very sad about the losses of my babies, I no longer suffer from depression, just occasional sadness. Until that got dealt with, there was just no way I could have filled my joy tank for more than a few seconds. All right. Or minutes, maybe. I could have been happy for a bit, but joy is not happiness. That's happiness is a paltry substitute for joy. Anyone can experience happiness, but joy is a fruit of the spirit. It has to be planted, nurtured and grown. It isn't something you can just decide to do or have. You can do things that contribute to the process. But the truth is that, you know, it's just like patience, self-control, peace, gentleness, trust, and love. We can try, but we need to be equipped by God, and especially when there's abuse, uh, abuse issues in our past. Maybe you are at the point where you can do the joy tank, and I sure hope so. Maybe you're at the point where you're needing to work through forgiveness or acceptance that the past cannot be changed, or to see relationships as they really are and not as you want them to be. Or to um, question the expectations that you and others put on yourself. Or to question where your personal boundaries should be set. And Henry Cloud also has a great book on that. <coughs> or, you know, get off Facebook because that place is a joy killer for sure. <coughs> so, excuse me, even with my joy tank full, then I noticed that I still had problems with cynicism. And I mean, it was bad. 
Yahweh challenged me on it because cynicism involves falsely accusing people of things they haven't done yet, or ever will. Now, I know a lot of you will be able to relate to laying or sitting in bed at night, obsessing about what people might do to you, and like, one night God was like, why are you lying about these people? They haven't even done any of this to you. And sometimes I was even making up fictional people in situations and getting outraged about that, and it's hilarious now. But I had to learn to say, oh my gosh, Tyler, this isn't even true. Just cut it out. Lying about imaginary people is not that much better than lying about real people. <laughs> but I did it because it made me feel safer and more powerful if I could imagine these fictitious scenarios and come up with solutions and comebacks and, you know, watch them suffer for hurting me. <laughs> I am betting a lot of you who were similarly bullied can totally identify with this. But this sort of stress is hard on the mind and body. We're living vicariously through traumatic events and unnecessary because they never happened. Uh, or we relive what actually did happen, but we make it worse. This feeds our anger, resentment, and bitterness, and makes the other person into a monster instead of just another human being who decided to do evil to us. Dehumanizing them is so tempting, right? It fuels the fire of our martyrdom, and those are very unhealthy fires to stoke up. Psychologically, we do it for a reason, but it only hurts us. They've probably moved on, it, and yeah, it just kills joy. Now, after just denying myself cynicism for a while, Yahweh just disappeared it one day. Okay, it was gone. I no longer assumed that everyone was out to get me. Now, some people are, but dreading it was just sapping the life out of me. And they're going to do to me whatever they want, regardless of whether or not I spend the time thinking about it beforehand. All right. I will tell you one thing. One thing. A lot of times we get got by people who are just, they're just like that. Should I feel betrayed when a dude who built up his ministry making videos mocking people who he dis disagrees with made one about me? No, not at all. That's who he is. And it had nothing to do with me or what I teach. It was him needing an outlet for him being him. Okay. My feelings, life, or basic humanity never entered into the equation. If it wasn't me, it'd be somebody else because his audience enjoys it. And so he looks at his 10,000 views and it feeds whatever fuels him. I'm just another log in the fire. Cynicism takes what he did and foists that motivation on everyone, but most people I deal with aren't like him. But it also involves lying, which we aren't permitted to do. A lot of the activities that still, that destroy our joy just boil down to needing to have our thinking processes identified and rearranged, but only God knows the proper order and how to do it, okay? Therapists can really help, and especially those who specialize in trauma. I believe that many are gifted by God with insight as to how to work someone through that maze so it doesn't take decades. <clears throat> Don't ever be ashamed for getting help if you need help. An outside objective eye can just be, you know, be just what a person needs to begin healing. Dr. Cloud really did that for me with his book. All right, now, the fruit of the spirit takes work and time and divine help. But it doesn't mean we're powerless, all right? I have worked hard to get where I am, and I'm truly am more joyful more often than not now. 
But let's talk about what joy doesn't mean. Joy doesn't mean that I'm no longer an introvert. I don't think that'll ever change. Joy doesn't mean that I'm not a very shy person, because I am. Joy doesn't mean that I still don't have severe social anxiety, because I do. For me, speaking at a conference, in even a small one, is very hard. Even if I'm the keynote speaker, I'm very aloof and often by myself. And unless someone approaches me and strikes up a conversation, you know, and, and if they do, I can be very congenial, but I'm also very much stressed out. And to compensate, I will often say things that sound good in my head, but I would never write down because they're awkward and sometimes even callous. My people skills are seriously bad. They're better than they used to be because I do a lot less fear speaking now. <laughs> I can be quiet in a conversation because I am less scared than I used to be and I don't need to control it as much as I used to need to, okay? But honestly, I am more joyful now because I am home doing what I love. At home, there's no social pressure on me to perform and answer questions on the fly. I don't have to watch every move and every word to make sure I'm not giving people the wrong impression. I'm not scared to death of being unwelcome or rejected for my awkwardness. Yes, even when I am invited to speak, I still suffer from feelings that I will be rejected. Crazy, huh? So for me, Sukkot Joy has to take those things into consideration. I could walk around Disneyland and be perfectly content because no one knows me and I'm not expected to interact with anyone because I'm invisible. But a conference or a camping trip with a large group? That would exhaust me. I also have some elderly critters who need taken care of. I was also a special needs mom. Well, I still am, but he's an adult now. And that comes with its own unique challenges that make what is fun for a lot of people a whole lot less fun for me. Sukkot needs to be joyful, and what that looks like for your family will be different than what it looks like for somebody else's family. So, hey, seriously, capitalize on what you enjoy. Want to have a huge birthday party for Yeshua with a bounce house in the back and a barbecue every day to sort of reenact the food offerings? Go for it. That's very American. Every culture has its own ways of celebrating. You don't have to try and take on Jewish traditions that are filled with meaning for them, be not because they're Jewish per se, but because of fond childhood memories. When we ditch our own culture and co-opt another, we lose the joy associated with those precious memories. I think that's why so many people get so angry when they give up Christmas and Easter and try to do the biblical feasts instead. You know, that because they've been manipulated and bullied and oftentimes, you know, well, they've also been forced to give up the happiness of their memories and made to feel guilty about them. And I think that's just a horrible thing to do. And the fruit of doing that to people is bad when they look back at their Christmas and Easter memories and now they feel that there's something dirty about them. That's a horrible thing to do. And so I've never seen any good fruit come from that. So memories of that sort are more about family closeness and love than with the holiday itself. Giving that up is a mistake. So make sugar cookies and frost them and put those little silver balls on them and sprinkles. You know, if you did it, you know, with your parents and grandparents, you know, you're going to associate that with joy, right? There isn't anything wrong with that. 
Nothing wrong with lights and decorations either and the associated cultural good feelings. Don't neglect the ways that you have been conditioned to experience joy. We're not talking about cockfighting here and bullfighting and things that are oppressing somebody else, all right? Cultural expressions are not inherently bad or pagan. They're just cultural. A lot of times, and especially in the first few years of discovering that handful of commandments that mainstream Christianity doesn't keep, we get super legalistic and we throw out too much. And we succumb to the propaganda that's out there about, well, you know, just about everything. And on the other hand, there are voices out there saying that everything traditionally Jewish is bad too. And it leaves people with the idea that they could only do what is written and guess what? Like almost nothing is written down and what is written mostly can't be done. It's a recipe for disaster and failure and for no joy. So, you know, don't try to be something or someone or some culture that you're not. I'm telling you it'll be meaningless and empty for you most of the time. Instead, do what you know. And if you want to add in some other cultural elements a bit at a time. Ditch or alter the ones that don't really do it for you and keep the ones that do. Build traditions without destroying the old ones. Celebrate your own traditions without demanding that everyone else do it your way. And celebrate your way unapologetically. You know, just ignore the people who demand that you do it their way. And be a voice of love and compassion to others. I tell you, there is Great joy to be found in rescuing others from confusion and despair. Just because, you know, you might have suffered at the hands of those people who push the holidays but never teach anyone how, or flippantly tell you, just read your Bible without anything more. And I'm going to tell you right now that the people who do that probably don't really know anything. Or if they did, they would be happy to share because people like to teach what they actually understand. People like to be in the know. You've probably noticed that. Now, we are here to help one another. And if someone doesn't know how to celebrate Sukkot, remind them that they do know how to celebrate other things. Tell them to start with what brings them joy. Excuse me. Um, and expresses gratitude for the year's provision, which was the whole point of Sukkot. How did God provide and come through over the course of the last year? Passover was a memorial of the Exodus event. And to this, we add the memorial of the inauguration of the new covenant through Yeshua. Sukkot was a memorial of the provision of the wil in the wilderness of manna and quail and water, as well as a celebration of the immediate bounty of the previous year. With your family, it won't, probably won't be particularly agricultural unless you were inundated with zucchini and tomatoes to the point where you're not thankful anymore. <laughs> but God did come through in other ways for each member of the family. Remember those because it is in remembering that Yahweh first taught me to fill, to remember joy and fill up my joy tank. Teaching our kids to remember and experience joy in that way provides a buffer against future trauma. I have personally found that when my joy tank is full, I can deal with a whole lot of nonsense. And when it's empty, the nonsense breaks me down pretty easily. 
Ugh. So I was going to include a bunch of the answers from my blog. And when I originally wrote the uh, transcript, I, I, uh, I said, but I'm just going to, I'm going to include a few things just, just right here talking. And, and I'm going to put the link in my transcript. If you want to go and read what everyone had to say, and it was all very edifying. It was all very awesome. A lot of it was brutally honest. And I, I was really grateful to everyone who contributed. Um, so Sukkot can be, you know, anything from traveling to Jerusalem to staying home, caring for a father who would otherwise have to be placed in a nursing home for the week if you left. You know, the part of the point of honoring God through experiencing joy, you know, that's that's Sukkot. All right. It really does bring him glory when we get joyful. Um, and gosh, I just go through it. There are so many testimonies from moms who are tired, from people who are um, distracted and, and they don't know how to do it and they feel defeated and some have really weird pressure put on them. Some have life circumstances that don't allow them to do it at all. Check it out. Check it out. You, you'll be you'll be glad you did because and especially if you're an event planner, there might be some stuff in there that you have never considered that would make your Sukkot gathering more inclusive and more joyful and not just, you know, yet one more religious event that caters to families with children. Because the world is bigger than that. And, you know, sadly, we've become a society that caters to um, children and families with children, and they're not everybody. A lot of people are not there yet or beyond that age or just not ever going to do that. So we have to remember them, too, or um, or we're not being a family. Anyway, uh, next week we're going to start in Mark 14. Heavy stuff.